Um, that in today's, let me say something about Saul's name for a second. So it is common to have heard sermons, we've all heard them in great sermons, that will talk about how, how Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul. In reality, Paul was his Greek name and Saul was his Jewish name. And there, there are places even after his conversion and after he had been named an apostle in which he is called Saul. Specifically in Acts 13, and he's called Saul by the Holy Spirit. So that's a pretty authoritative uh, use of his name there. And so when he would go into Gentile lands, uh, Greek-speaking lands, he would go by Paul. And when he was in Jewish, Hebrew-speaking lands, he would also be called Saul. That's to say, I'm going to forget which one is in this text throughout our time together. So you will hear me refer to him as Saul and Paul, and it's the same person. All right? All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 9, and we will read verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. And so now, Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would bless uh, the sermon, bless this time, that you might grow us in your grace, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might be able to understand what you have for us. We pray for anointing for the preacher and hearer alike. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. You know, the story of Saul's conversion is one of the most well-known in Scripture. 
Even unbelievers know uh, what it means to have a Damascus Road experience when there's a sudden and very um, radical change of mind or a conversion. Now, it's, it's famous, and it should be famous, because Paul goes through a radical transformation in this text. And we must ask the question, what or whom could cause Paul to change from seeking to imprison and ultimately leading to their death to kill Christians to being one of the most fruitful evangelists in all of Christian history? That happens in today's text. In other words, what could change him from being murderous Saul to brother Saul? Well, it is none other than the same one who changes you and me, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the beginning with Saul, and then we'll look at the end with Saul to see the before and after, the before and after you know, pictures you take, and then we'll look at the construction process of how we got from one to the other. First, let's look at murderous Saul. Who was he before he was a Christian? Well, he was a pretty bad dude. That's, that's the theological language, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, Luke here and elsewhere in chapter 8, he uses language of, of, um, of like a wolf going after prey, ravaging the church. He, he, he dragged off men and women, not, not apostles, not the leadership. These are normal Christians. He, he dragged them off and committed them to prison. But perhaps the pickings had gotten slim in Jerusalem. He needed fresh meat. And so he went to Damascus. Now, why go to Damascus? I've always wondered that until this week. Very helpfully, I got to study this text. There's a reason he went to Damascus. Now, during the COVID outbreak, there was a big push to confine it, right? So that it wouldn't hit the cities with an international airport. That it wouldn't hit those big commercial places so that it wouldn't spread all over the world. And that's why Paul went to Damascus. Damascus was about 150 miles away. It was about a week-long trip from Jerusalem to Damascus. And Damascus was an important commercial hub, and through it, roads traveling north and south, east and west, came. It was kind of like the one place in the area. In fact, it was, it was really an oasis on the edge of a desert. It was the last place to go before you went north, and it was the first place you came to in order to get replenished in supplies before you came down into Palestine. And so if Christianity got there, it would spread like wildflower, wildflowers, right? It would be like COVID. It would be like a pandemic. It would be like a pandemic, this terrible scourge. That's how he saw it. And so he went and got uh, letters of authority, uh, basically extradition orders from the chief priests. And he, and it had to have been a good number of people who went with him, right? I mean, you don't go just by yourself. I mean, how are you going to bring all those people bound back on a 150-mile journey? There had been pack animals and guards from the temple. This is a big group of people, and he was going out of zeal for the Lord, but not according to knowledge. 
He was going out of a misplaced zeal for the Lord. Instead of doing the will of God, he was opposing God and opposing God's people. Now, if we look at the after pictures, if we look at the picture of who Saul is at the end of this text, it is radically different. Radically different. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. This is Ananias who had been sent to uh, lay hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Did you notice what Ananias called Saul? We shouldn't miss this. He calls him Brother Saul. Now, I was deeply influenced by a preacher in Montgomery who called everybody bro. And I say that a lot. I will say, hey, bro. Hey, brother. And sometimes I realize I've said it to someone who I know is not a Christian. And I kind of cringe. You know, I, that's actually, I, I use it intentionally because it's a brother in Christ. Ananias doesn't make a mistake here. See, Ananias is one of those whom Paul, Saul, would have been seeking to bind and bring back to Jerusalem. He is a Christian who has been worshiping in the synagogues. And now Jesus has told him, go and see this guy. No, no, Lord, don't you? I've heard about this guy. He's coming and he's going to take us away. And he walks in and he calls him what? Brother. What an amazing transformation. It's almost like murderous Saul and brother Saul are two different people. And it's because they are. This is what happens when we are converted, by the way. When we believe in Christ for salvation, we are no longer who we once were. We're a new person. I love how Paul puts in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have a a change of location, a change of status, no longer under the power and dominion of Satan. And now we are in Christ. We were dead and now alive. And he'll put it over in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now we struggle with sin. The flesh rears its ugly head all the time, right? But we are new people. New identities. That's why we can't identify with our sin. That belongs to the old age. I'm a believer in Christ who struggles with X, Y, and Z. But I am in Christ. We are new people. And this is what had happened to Saul. He was a new person. How unexpected. How could this be? What or whom could possibly change? Saul, of all the people you would have thought who would be following Christ and would be the most fruitful evangelist in all of history, Saul is the last guy you would ever think. Forget Paul. What about you and me? Who could change us? We, were, who, were, we who were in bondage to sin, spiritually dead, blind, It takes someone very powerful to make us alive together with Christ. 
Let's look at what happened to Saul and therefore to us. The first thing we see is that God had prepared Saul. There's preparation before this. I really appreciate John Stott's commentary on this point. He says, you know, a lot of times we preach this text as if this is a sudden conversion. And in some ways it is. It's very sudden. Here we are. And in all of our conversions, there's that sudden crisis, whether you remember when that was or not. But this is not the first time that he has heard of Jesus. There's a lot of preparation that goes before this. Don't we know that he would have been affected by being there, watching Stephen being stoned? Having seen Stephen's face glowing with radiance like an angel. And as he heard Stephen say, Behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Don't you know he would have been affected by as he dragged all those men and women from their homes to the cries of their children and taking them to prison. Don't you know the Lord must have used that to wiggle in. He knew the Scriptures so very well. He had gone to the Harvard or Cambridge or Oxford of Jewish Scriptures sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Perhaps one of the most educated men in all of Israel. This was Paul. He knew the Scriptures well. There had been much preparation for this point. This is how it usually is in our stories, isn't it? It is exceedingly rare for someone to hear of Christ at the same moment when they become Christians. The Holy Spirit is tilling up that soil using what we would say are quote-unquote chance encounters to sow those seeds. Surely that's part of your story, right? Before you became a Christian? How many times had you heard the gospel? How many times had someone prayed for you faithfully? God had prepared Saul. God had been tilling up his heart. You know, last week we talked about how God has elected His people from before the foundation of the world. He has not only chosen them, but He's also appointed the means by which they are saved. He, he appoints those who will go and tell opening their mouths to talk about Jesus. And this is what has happened with Saul. So first we have that Jesus tilled up his heart. He prepared Saul. But next we see that Jesus confronted Saul. You know, note that Saul was not seeking Jesus. He was seeking Jesus' followers so he could persecute them. And yet to the praise of His glorious grace, Jesus confronts Saul in such a way that he can't miss it. What a great prayer. Lord, confront that person in such a way they can't miss it. It's a great prayer for someone that we know that's not a believer. How does this happen? Verses 3 through 6. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. Well, that'd certainly get his attention. We learn from the two other places later in Acts where he recounts the same story, focusing on different elements of it, that it was around noon, and the, sun, the, the light that shone around him was brighter than the noonday sun. We learn in Galatians chapter 1, verse 16-ish, that, that he actually saw the risen Christ. This wasn't just some kind of amorphous bright light. But this was the Son of God Himself, the radiance of His Shekinah glory. And He is blinded. And as He is blinded, He hits the ground, falling down, bowing before the resurrected Christ, even as Christ called out to Him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? If there was a southern English version, it'd say, look, dummy, what you doing? What are you doing? And I love Saul's response. I've always wondered at it. Who are you, Lord? He uses the word Lord. He recognizes that he's in the presence of God. But he's got a lot of questions. Surely this can't be the resurrected Christ. Because he's not real. At least in his mind. Who are you, Lord? But don't you love Jesus doesn't leave them hanging? And I love Jesus' response. Because Jesus is going to use language that no Jew would have ever used. In Hebrew or Greek. They would never say, I am Parker. They would say, I is Parker. Not because they had bad grammar, but because to say I am was too close to God's divine name. The great I am from Exodus. And what does Jesus say? In the Greek and in the English, I am. Okay? Claim a divinity. I am. And who, who is he? I am Jesus. The one who was dead and who is now alive and raised and ascended into heaven. I am Jesus, God, man, whom you are persecuting. Don't you love that Jesus so closely identifies with his people that when his people are persecuted, you're persecuting Jesus himself. What a great solace. What a great balm and comfort when we have to count the cost to follow Jesus. Or our brothers and sisters around the world who really have to count the cost of following Jesus. Jesus confronted Paul in such a unique way in order to call him to be an apostle. Uh, And though he doesn't confront us with the shining light here like he did with Paul, he does this in conversion to us through the Word of God. In conversion, we are confronted not just by the claims of Christ, but by Christ Himself, working through Scripture, working through the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been confronted with Jesus? If you're a Christian, then yes. Perhaps we need to be reconfronted with Jesus sometimes, too. Okay, so we see that Jesus prepared Saul, that Jesus confronted Saul, and now we see that Jesus opened Saul's eyes, both physically and spiritually. There's such a play on the images of light and darkness and sight in this text. Going to Damascus, he could physically see, but he was spiritually blind. But then he is blinded physically so that he can see spiritually. And soon he will receive both. And then he is given a mission. I referenced it in the children's sermon, and it's from Acts 26, when he is telling this story to King Agrippa. And we find there the mission that God gave to Paul uh, in his mission to be an apostle. To go to the Gentiles, what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Don't you love that? What a a great um, object lesson. For Paul. So he thinks through those three days he did not eat or drink in which he was blind. You know, think about this. He was leading the group, bragging about what he was going to do, talking about who they were going to try to turn on whom and which synagogues they were going to go to first, and then bam, 
he is blinded. And they have to lead him. And then he goes to this house, Judas, the house of Judas, on a street called Straight, which, by the way, still exists, a street called Straight. Oldest city in the world is Damascus that's mentioned in Scripture. And it's the oldest road that we know of still in existence. And he's there. And don't you know, people would have been mighty confused about what was going on. People would have been talking. What in the world? This is Saul. This is like the A team. This is the SWAT team. This is, this is uh, SEAL Team 6. This is the Delta Force. And now he's blind, crying, curled up in a corner and praying. What are we to do? Before God changes us, we are spiritually blind. Unable to see the seriousness of our sin or our problem before God, nor can we see the loveliness of Christ. Just a name, Jesus, yeah, okay. It's only when God gives us eyes to see that we see how lovely Christ is and the redemption that is offered to us by His blood. I love Paul's prayer for the Ephesians as he records in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What a great way to pray. All right, finally we see that God gives Saul a mission. God gives Saul a mission. Uh, We are given this vision, or we are given this mission in Jesus' vision to Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You know, while Paul will mostly be an apostle to the Gentiles, he will also carry the name of Jesus to kings like Agrippa and Nero. And he will speak with many thousands of Jews in synagogues and then later in the temple courts when he is arrested. God had prepared Saul uniquely to fulfill this mission. And you know, he is uniquely, he is uniquely gifted you and prepared you for the mission that he has before you. See, Jesus did not save us to be comfortable. But as American Christians, we love being comfortable. It just really is true. We, we have bought more into the prosperity gospel than we'd like to admit. That Jesus doesn't save us to have a middle income, drive three nice cars. If he blesses with those things, fantastic, praise the Lord. Jesus has saved us to be about his business, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He gave Paul a mission and he's given us a mission. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers. That would almost be irreverent if it weren't true, that we would be given the privilege of being called God's fellow workers. How do we apply this text? Well, the normal way that this text is read and preached, and it is true, and it's what I've often thought of, is that God can save anyone. No one is beyond God's saving. We read about it actually in God Be the Glory. It's, I think verse 2, it talks about that. It's fantastic. And we should, we should learn that from this text. Paul was a bad dude. And he did not want Jesus. He was running as far away from Jesus as he could. No one is beyond the grace of God. Period. Full stop. 
But we should also note that Saul, though he was a bad dude, he was really religious. He was really religious. A lot of times it is harder for those who have the religion thing down to see their need for Jesus than it is for those who are living crazy lifestyles. Because most of the time, those who are leaving openly, worldly, hedonistic lives, they know what the claims of Scripture are, whether they agree with them or not. Right? They know that this out of, out of sorts, whether they care or not. But when someone is so deeply ensconced in earning their salvation, looking to what they are doing in, earn, in, in order to be right with God, that is the person whose heart is harder, is blinder. The scales are thicker. And it takes the very power of Jesus to show the need for Christ and the redemption that is in Him. Last thing I'd like to say in application-wise is that who gets the glory in this passage? Is it Paul? (laughs) No. This is applied to him. This is the same way with our salvation. God gets all the glory. Every single bit. From choosing us for the foundation of the world to promising us the blessing of getting to see the, the riches of His kindness, the immeasurable riches of His kindness in the world to come. To the saving moment, it all comes from God. This is why there's hope for any of us. Have you been confronted with Jesus? Have you been confronted with Jesus? Seek Him while He may be found. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. And may we be fellow workers with God. Let's pray. Father, is it in Christ alone that we have redemption? It is in Christ alone that we have hope. Nothing have we done to deserve your love and goodness. Lord, for those who have never been confronted by Jesus, may you confront them today. And we who need to be reconfronted by Jesus, may that happen today as well. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.